this sort of language all the time about um, you know, God being my friend, and we sing about it all the time, but, but in reality, in, in your real life, how's, how does that work? What is uh, your, quote, friendship with God or relationship with God really like? And uh, by way of just sort of getting into it, I was thinking about this with regard to where we live. Um, again, those of you will know this well, but anyway, if you don't, we live in a big old house in Bristol is packed full of people, and over the years have had, um, well, we've started to count, actually, and um, I think it's well over 100 people live with us as a family during that time, 60 of whom would be international students, um, but, uh, but we're going to continue to count and work it out. Um, and um, it's fascinating to see how relationships develop, because we kind of get a rerun of this lots and lots of times. And quite recently, we had Elizabeth Bennett, if you know her, lovely girl, move in with us. She's not a foreign student. She's very, very British. Um, and, but, um, but also, we've got a student um, in his fourth year doing computing called Jordan. And then we've got my daughter and various other people. I won't run through them all. Got real trouble at the top with Graham and Isabel, who's moving. <laughs> <laughs> a lot of hassle up there. Um, actually, Isabel just cooked his Sunday lunch. <laughs> real benefits too. Um, but, um, but it's fascinating to look at the friendships and how relationships form. And um, you might like just to think to yourself as to who you class as friends and what a difference that, that's happened, what a difference it's made to your life and how that uh, your life has been impacted as the friendship has developed. Um, with, um, with Jordan getting to know Jancis, my daughter, and getting to know Elizabeth, that all three um, 
you start off quite nervous and all the rest of it. But anyway, just the other day, and this is just give it a picture of where they're getting to. Um, Zoe and I noticed our fridge freezer disappeared that we're selling. We stuck it in trade. If anyone wants one, you know, come and ask me. Uh, and it was outside in, in the hall downstairs. So we came home one night and it had gone. We thought, oh, wow, you know, it's sold. Thank goodness for that. Um, and um, went upstairs and then we discovered it hadn't sold at all. And in fact, what um, Jordan and Jance had done was stick it in Elizabeth's bedroom and stuff it full of all her teddy bears and toys. So she came home at 11 o'clock at night, and here's the fridge freezer in her room, um, full of all the soft toys and things. And they've done various other uh, crazy pranks. They sort of got into a real routine, but uh, that was just the latest one. I better get on with my talk in a minute. But, <laughs> but, um, but I suppose all I'm really saying is that um, uh, what happens when friendship forms is that we do more together. Um, instance, and we talk more together. I suppose we start to talk more deeply together. Um, think about the friends that you might come up with. You start to be more honest, obviously, and you begin to feel able to um, perhaps bear your soul. Um, I, I guess with, 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 quote, real friends, as opposed to acquaintances, um, you shared some real joys. And when good news, when something really good happens, who do you want to tell? You want to tell the people who you know will rejoice with you. There's no point in telling people aren't that fast. But you want to tell somebody who you know would be as almost as excited as you are about things that have happened. And, um, and I find myself thinking um, uh, about that, translating that into my relationship with Jesus, and clearly we're looking at John's gospel, friend of Jesus, um, and I'm wondering what um, what our relationship with God is like. We've been thinking about the fact that actually that's what he wants, wants friendship with us. I was reading another book recently, that's by old theologian, um, but what he was, he was trying uh, to get to ways in which we can communicate what it means to become a Christian to people who have no language for it and don't really understand it. And, and he was saying how useless it is to quote theology at people um, who won't understand it. And uh, in the end, one of the things that he said was that, that he felt that to become a Christian, this is that, you know, decades of um, teaching and very very good theologian, Leslie Weatherhead, his name is. He said, um, it's, it's receiving the friendship of God. That's what it means to become a Christian. It's a gift. You don't, you don't actually do anything to become a Christian. Um, it's not, you've got to sign up to a set of beliefs. And I think we do often major in our kind of world on getting our beliefs right, as if that makes you a Christian. He's saying it's, it's about receiving the gift of the friendship of God. And I suppose I wonder, how can we move from the kind of cerebral Christianity that so often we live with, this idea that it all goes on in our head into, um, into friendship. So maybe this story will help us with that. So it, John's Gospel, I'm saying, is um, a story by a close friend. And, um, and it is, I think, a story... The whole gospel 
but this particular story that we're looking at, the wedding at Cana, uh, <laughs> teaches lots of things. But one thing it certainly is teaching is that God is not distant. So um, that's, uh, that's where I'm coming from with this. So here are the questions that... Um, now, I'll read the passage first. Let's read it. You've got a Bible, you can follow along. If you haven't, you can't. You can just listen. Um, but um, I doubt whether um, this is news to you, this story. On the third day, a wedding took place at Cana in Galilee. Jesus' mother was there, and Jesus and his disciples had been invited to the wedding. When the wine was gone, Jesus' mother said to him, They have no more wine. Dear woman, why do you involve me? Jesus replied. My time has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, Do whatever he tells you. Talked quite a bit about all of those little interchanges, couldn't we? Um, but I'll go on. And nearby stood six stone water jars, the kind used by the Jews for ceremonial washing, each holding from 20 to 30 gallons. Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with water. So they filled them to the brim. Then he told them, now draw some out and take it to the master of the banquet. They did so, and the master of the banquet tasted the water that had been turned into wine. He didn't realize where it had come from, though the servants who had drawn the water, they knew. Then he called the bridegroom aside and said, Everyone brings out the choice wine first, and then the cheaper wine, after the guests have had too much to drink. But you saved the best till now. And this, John tells us, the first of his miraculous signs, Jesus performed at Cana in Galilee. And he thus revealed his glory, and his disciples put their faith in him. So I want to come back to that conclusion uh, you know, at the end. And, uh, but um, there's the story. Um, and, uh, and here are some questions that it flags up to me. Um, and then I want to make some observations about it. So first one is, do, do I and do you apply it to yourself? Do I consider Jesus to be a friend? And, and what kind of friend do I most enjoy? Um, have a think about it. And what friends can you think of? Just um, at the new year, I um, collected a few uh, newspapers and mostly so that I had some fuel for lighting the fire. Um, it's quite interesting. In Sunday Times, in fact, they all had features, which, you know, how they do reviews at the beginning of the, the new year, uh, review the old and sort of predict the future and get it all wrong, mostly. Um, but in, the, in one of the Sunday Times magazines, um, it had quite a long article that, um, that was reviewing... Um, a what's what's regarded as the most thorough longitudinal study of um, of human life 
that has ever been conducted um, by some scientists in Harvard University. Some of you may have seen the article, I don't know. Um, and um, and the, the purpose of the study, aha, was to discover um, what, is, what makes a good life. What do you actually need to do to create a good life? Because after all, we're all after one, aren't we? You know, whether you believe in God or not. I've never met anyone who isn't, doesn't want, actually want a really good life. And this study was started back in, I don't know, 1938 or something. It's run for 76 years or more. And, um, and they took a bunch of, of young people who they picked as being people who were sorted. You know, like people who are actually the cream of the cream. And they did all sorts of, whatever, it's psychometric tests and all sorts of things on them. And they followed them all the way through their life. It's an incredible study. I think it's called the Alameda study or something. And at various stages during this time, their careers have blossomed, some have collapsed, got married, had children, got divorced, all sorts of things have happened to them. And they followed these people throughout the whole period, trying to work out, um, so what are the keys? You know, Who's done well? And, and who's actually satisfied? Fascinating study. I could have brought it along. But um, the, the conclusions... Um, always make me think, as someone who has done psychology myself, how uh, funny it is, really, that we spend vast amounts of money trying to find out things which we all know intuitively anyway. And, um, and certainly as Christians, we should know anyway. So they discovered it wasn't sex, and it wasn't money, and it wasn't power. And all these people have had all kinds of careers. It wasn't this, wasn't that, wasn't the other. And in the end... Um, during the article, one of the things they asked the, the, the current lead researcher, because, you know, quite a few people have died, um, they said, so from this whole study, you know, what would you say is most important? And he said, well, he said, forget everything apart from your relationships. Yeah. Yeah. We kind of live in a culture that's all about um, achievements, don't we? Kind of chasing after the wrong things. Um, and celebrity, fame. And I suppose it gets, I don't know about you, you might be immune to all this, but it affects me. I start to somehow believe that if I get the next Apple computer, I will be happier. I kind of am for the months or so um, until I want the next one. Um, and Jesus, at the heart of the gospel, of a good life, a good relationship, and us learning to cultivate them. And, um, and if the key to winding up as an old person, if you get that far, um, but at any stage of your life, being able to recognize the fact that you've invested in the right thing, and that, um, that life is, there's a purpose to life. I, in thinking about, um, especially mission, has really been the thing that has gripped me over the last few years. And, um, that's another story in terms of where it's taken me. But, um, but I have sort of come to a, a conclusion that, um, that we, if, if you're thinking about people who, are, who you know who are not Christians, and certainly my experience of evangelism, has often been misdirected. And um, in the past, I've, I've often ended up with the feeling that somehow I've got to persuade people to believe in God. I've got somehow, and if you go back to the old fantastic Adrian Plath parody, 
we somehow got to bring you know, God in artistically into your conversation and, and um, bring it round you know, to something. And, um, and I've increasingly come to see that actually the key question and, and key question is, what are you living for? If you start to get in, into a relationship with someone that is good enough to start to honestly explore that question, I believe it eventually will lead you to God. Um, it's not about trying to persuade someone to believe in God. Belief is an outcome of what you're doing, what you're investigating. It's not something you start... You, you can't make yourself believe anything, actually. Belief is a result of what you explore. You know, relationships. This passage uh, really brings this up to me. What do I expect of my relationship with God? Second question. I won't spend too much time on that. But, um, but, the, but it's obvious, isn't it, that if you have a good friend, certainly I can think of certain friends that I will ask to do things for me that I've never asked other people. When Terry sat at the back, it wasn't so long ago I was in a meeting, and I needed to pay for something, and I had no money. I had no um, hesitation to walk up to Terry and say, have you got any money you could give me? You don't go up and say that to anybody, and he immediately said, get lost. <laughs> <laughs> no, he didn't. He didn't even hesitate. He pushed his wallet out, you know, gave me whatever it was, 20 quid or 10 quid. And, um, and, but, <laughs> I'm still waiting for it back now. <laughs> what, what do you expect of God? And um, I guess that the friendship with God will be reflected in what we expect of our friends. Um, third question, where do we encounter him? Here we'll be looking at a wedding, but um, where do we meet with him? And, um, and lastly, the question that raises for me is, what does he expect of me? Because again, in real friendship, um, friendship, friends... It's not one way, is it? Um, friends actually expect something from us. So what do you think today Jesus expects of you? Uh, if you think about it, I began to think about it myself since I had to give this talk. Okay, so those are my questions. Here are my observations to finish with. Uh, I haven't really got going yet, but, <laughs> but it won't be that much longer. What time do we finish, in fact? In about five minutes. Okay. That gives about a minute. Minute point. Um, observations to me are recognizing that we, we know this story. It's a familiar story. Is that, that one thing it reveals is that there are a lot of people in the commotion of this wedding who were not aware that Jesus was there. Um, and in fact, um, only uh, one person actually went to get him. Um, so Jesus was present. So one of my observations is, how often am I, or you, in situations in which Jesus is present, but we are not aware of it? Certainly not aware that he is there. But he was there. So that's my, my first observation. The second one, uh, which I'm sure you will have heard before, is 
What about um, it, it, this story tells us something about what kind of person Jesus is. And we think about, you know, open the eyes of my heart, we want to see you. What is Jesus like, really? This story gives us a wonderful insight into what he's really like. Um, because it tells us something about his priorities. You could say, water into wine, has he got something better to do, like save the planet? Um, and John puts this in, says specifically, the first miracle. Um, it does seem a little bit trivial, potentially. Um, and here is Jesus at the heart of a very, in a sense, ordinary, obviously very special for the people, but very ordinary event, engaging with it. So this story reminds me that the greatness of God is that the creator of this entire cosmos is also engaged in the very personal things that are going on in your life and mine. So ask me something then about his priorities. And... Um, and I suppose, as I say, Mary went to get him. Mary did know he was there. I wonder how often we don't go and get him. I suppose in a sense, you know, we and they wanting to, I know it's a completely different concept, but it makes me think that they're, they're in a sense, they're trying to draw Jesus into the situation, the tragic situation that Raymond's facing at the moment. But... Um, if Jesus is present in your home, at work, in the things that currently you're facing, who's going to get him? Who's Mary in your life? Or you know, where does Mary, as it were, in your own personal life feature? Because quite often, I, I, I wonder if we fail, or maybe as a friend, he is available, but we don't go and get him. Um, many stories that I could tell about this to illustrate um, but I'll come back to it. The next observation I've got is obviously the old stone jars. And I said, French friends expect something of us. And quite clearly, um, Jesus took something, or at least asked for something, they had to make available to him. And if we want this friendship with him, grow, the question it brings to me is, what am I making available to him? What are you? Actually, it's a very practical thing. Sometimes, again, we spiritualize everything. It's like, well, I'm going to make my whole life <laughs> available to God. But the reality was, it was making stone jars available. It wasn't you know, their whole life. About 25 years of roughly or so ago, Zoe and I, with our first little baby, um, Jesse, living in you know, a two-and-a-half-bed house down in Alderson, felt God was saying, go and plant a church in Thornbury. And, um, and, and, and during that time, I felt he wanted us to make ourselves available, not just a moved house, but we didn't have to give six stone jars. Actually, what God spoke to us about at that time was the box room. <laughs> and who would we open up our little house to? To include somebody else. And that was the beginning 
of us living as extended families. As I say, wound up in Reading, in a massive house. Um, it's, uh, it's mostly owned by the Cheltenham Gloucester Building Society. It is. We're there as long as we can pay the bills. Um, but, uh, but over 25 years or so, we've been able to share our life and our family with, uh, I don't know, we're going to count, but it's about 150 people at least. Uh, and I'm not talking about people who just stayed for a night. Um, I'm talking about people who stayed with us for extended periods of time. Some of whom, certainly not all, some of whom uh, we've enjoyed a tremendous uh, opportunity of discipleship and friendship, and who have added a huge amount to us and to our family, and who we've also been able to share our lives with. So the friendship, this story tells me, requires us to make available something. And I find it's a challenge to ask myself, well, what am I, what's available now? What am I going to make available? Um, and the last point is this, that James, you'll have no doubt had this point, especially being in CCF, you'll have heard this many times, but um, Jesus didn't just convert a bottle full. I mean, it's about 180 gallons. That does seem a little bit extravagant, doesn't it? But I think the hallmark of a great relationship, and certainly the hallmark of a great church, is not precise numbers. It's not um, you know how many feet in the wet, how many miracles we perform. I think it's the generosity of spirit. That exists amongst us. And, and here we see something of the nature of, of God that is so generous. And, um, and it, this story reminds me again and again that if we engage with him as a friend, the impact on us will enlarge us, enlarge our hearts, certainly, and enlarge our world. Um, and I think one of the accusations of the church so often is that we are narrow-minded, uh, narrow, defensive, rigid. You know, we, that's a very negative take on the church. I don't think that's true. Certainly, it's very difficult to find that true about Jesus. And I think his friendship would transform us in the process. Am I out of time? Pretty much. Um, <laughs> I have, actually. Um, <laughs> I want to read you a story to finish. Well, that, that's yeah, five more minutes. Yeah. I mean, there's loads more things I can say, but um, uh, I was going to give you one miracle, but I'll just tell you, uh, in terms of you know, God, um, you know, God being present, but us having a Mary or someone to call on him, perhaps one of the most telling ones in my life was when I was really sick. Some of you again will know about this. But... Um, the person who called on Jesus, um, it was age six at the time, it was Josh. And, um, and one night, despite all my fears that his faith would be destroyed by the fact that you know, I didn't get better, which didn't happen, fortunately, um, but he used to pray for me every night. And uh, there was one night when he prayed that God would stop the boils. You, you need the gruesome details to really appreciate this, but I won't give them to you because of time. It's horrible, but I was getting the most dreadful boils as a symptom of the 
they did. Despite all the doctors' attempts to stop them, which they couldn't, and all the drugs guys were doing, didn't. So we need, we need figures like that. Okay, so to finish with, I'm going to read you a completely fictional but extremely biblical take on this very story. I just thought um, you, you might like it. It comes from Anne Rice's novel. Um, you'll, you'll pick up where it um, is halfway through the story anyway. My lord, it's done, said the first of the servants as he stood beside the rows of jars. I gestured to the nearby tray of goblets, only one of the many throughout the room. I heard in my mind the voice of the tempter in the desert. A delusion. Why, even Elijah could have managed that. I looked at the head servant. I saw the tension and near desperation in his eyes, and I saw the fear in the faces of the others. Draw now from the jar and fill that cup, I said. Take it to Jason, the friend of the bridegroom who sits beside the master. Is he not the master of the feast? Yes, my lord, the servant answered warily. He put the dipper into the jar. He let out a long, low gasp. The red wine shone in the light of the candles. The disciples stared as the wine flowed down from the dipper into the goblet in the servant's hand. I felt the coolness come over my skin that I'd felt at the Jordan River. I felt a faint, near delicious, sizzling sensation. And then it was gone as quickly and silently as it had come. Take it to him, I said to the servant. I pointed to Jason. My uncle was unable to laugh or speak. The disciples seemed to collectively hold their breath. The servant hurried into the, bank the, the banquet room and around the table, he thrust the goblet into Jason's hand. I let the words reach me through the noise of the throng. The wine that's just come, said the servant, trembling, almost unable to form the words. Jason took a deep drink of it without hesitating. My lord, he said to Hananel, you've done the most splendid trick. He stood up, drank more from the cup. Most men wait until the first wine's done its work, only to bring out the lesser vintage. You saved the best wine for last. I stared up at him. In a small, cold voice, he said, Give me that cup. Jason didn't notice the coldness. He was already arguing with Nathaniel again, but Nathaniel was staring across the table and beyond at those of us gathered in the courtyard by the jars. Hananel drank. He sat back. We looked at one another over the distance. The servants were hurrying to the jars and ladling the wine into the empty cups and goblets. Tray after tray was being taken to the banquet tables and rugs. No one saw Hananel looking at me, except for Nathaniel. Nathaniel rose slowly and came towards us. Out of the corner of my eye, I saw my mother leave her post at the door of the banquet room and disappear behind the thin veils of gauze. Young John kissed my hand, and Peter knelt and kissed my hand, and the others gathered round to kiss my hand. No, stop this, I said. You mustn't do this. I turned, and I went out of the courtyard, through the foyer, and out into the open garden, away from the revellers. I walked until I was in the furthest corner of the walled orchard, from which I could see the rooms of the women flanked this side of the house. The arches were filled with pulsing light. And all the disciples were now clustered around me. James headed towards me, and so did my younger brothers. Cleopas came and stood before me. Jason and Nathaniel and Matthew came out, Matthew arguing forcefully with young John and with one of the servants, a very young boy. 
who fell back now, shyly, bowing his head and backing away. I tell you, I don't believe it, said Matthew. What do you mean you don't believe it, declared young John. I saw it. I saw them take the jars to the well. I saw them bring the jars back. I talked to them. I saw their faces. I saw it. How can you stand there and say you don't believe it? That explains how you believe it, said Jason, but not how we are to believe it. He rushed up to me, forcing the others out of his way. Yeshua, you claim to have done this, to have changed those six jars of water into wine. How dare you put that question to him, said Peter. How many witnesses does this require for you to believe? We stood there. His uncle stood there. Now, that I do not believe, declared my brother James. Cleopas, did you witness yourself what they're saying, that all the wine being served now was water before he changed it? I tell you, this is mad. Suddenly, all but Cleopas was speaking at once. Only Cleopas stood there, studying me. The night was evaporating, and up came the deepest blue of the dawn. The stars, my precious stars, were still visible, and beyond, the house sang still and throbbed with dancing. What will you do now? Cleopas asked. I thought for a long moment. Then I answered. I will go on. I'm surprised and surprised. Let me pray. Lord, we so need your friendship. Our faith so often becomes distant or dry. We become discouraged. We don't recognize your presence. We don't know, Lord, if you would do what we think of as trivial things. But I pray today that you will enter into the very intimate areas of our lives, our homes, our relationship with our children, our work, the things we're doing with colleagues. And Lord, that this relationship, this friendship with you will change us into people who really do live the good life. We ask this for Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you. Um, one of the things that uh, we do, or we encourage you to do, I encourage myself to do it, is this discipline of two questions. So if you've got a piece of paper on the way in, you've got it written on there, but actually it doesn't matter if you didn't, because I can tell you them. So what have you seen or heard today that struck you most? So Neil's given us a lot of questions, a lot of things to think about. But over coffee or over the next week, let your mind come back to that. And so what, what is it the thing that, that really stuck, stuck out to you? That's the first question. Second question is, what can I do about that? What can I, what can I, how can I respond? And that's the transformation part. So the first part is information, revelation. It's great, but actually if it doesn't lead to transformation, then, you know, it's just interesting. And, and God's more than interesting. Uh, he's, he's after transformation in our lives. Um, so thank you for coming.